Hello, and welcome to the What Type Ones Eat podcast. I'm Daria. I'm Andrew. And we're delighted that you have decided to join us for season two. In this series, we are speaking to professionals from the diabetic industry, researchers, doctors, dietitians, and people in the public eye. The aim of this podcast is to equip you with strategies based on their research and experience and to help you make the best choices for you to live life to the full with your diabetes. Before we start, we just want to remind you that nothing on this podcast is intended as medical or nutritional advice, and you should always consult your diabetes team before you make any changes to your management. Today, we have the amazing Dr. Chowdhury with us. He is a practitioner and a researcher in hypoglycemia in type 1 diabetes. He has seen it all. He has defined hypoglycemia. He looked at um, hypoglycemia unawareness uh, and reducing it, and also in hypoglycemia in non-diabetic people. His research is very deep and super interesting, and I hope you really enjoy Enjoy this episode and without further ado well as usual just let's hop into it hi dr chowdhury how are you very good thank you um you have done some amazing research in different areas of type 1 diabetes could you tell us what you do um and what your research areas are Sure. So I'm Professor Pratik Chowdhury. I'm a professor of diabetes. That means I spend about half my time doing research and half my time uh, doing clinical work. I, I, for the last 20 years, I pretty much only, uh, my clinical work has been only people with type 1 diabetes. And uh, I'm also a national chair of something called the Diabetes Technology Network, which has a focus on improving access to technology to people with diabetes and educating healthcare professionals how to support uh, people with diabetes to use those technologies. And so, uh, but actually a lot of my research has been around um, the impact of hypoglycemia on people living with diabetes and different ways in which we can minimize that impact. And then in particular, a long introduction, in particular, my pastime is we take people uh, with and without diabetes and make them hypoglycemic down to about 2.5 in the MRI scanner for about an hour. Uh, that is nasty. Understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely grateful and amazed that people actually agree to take part in these studies and say, I'm going to be put at 2.5 inside an MRI scanner for one hour. Um, but it's about understanding why do some people lose the ability to recognize hypoglycemia? Mm -hmm. what's, what's different in their brains that stops that happening? Um, and so that's been a big part of my research work over the last 10 years. Okay. And did you mention that you do that to people who don't have type 1 as well? Yeah. So the kind of a series of projects that I've almost just almost completed actually um, is you know your first you need scientifically first you need to know well, what happens in let's call it normal physiology you know the way the human body was designed uh, and then okay that's what happens and then you, you study some of those and see okay what's the normal response to hypoglycemia then you see what's the response in people who have good warning signs of hyperglycemia so you say okay once you've had diabetes for 20 years but you why do some people have diabetes for 20 years and still recognize their hypos they've clocked up thousands of hypos over the years anyway. And then why do some people lose the warning signs of hypoglycemia as well? So try and understand that. So that's why we, we studied all three groups. Okay. I was just wondering, like, how does the body of a person without type 1 actually let you put them at 2.5? Because that's quite a low number. 
Yeah, so um, so we we did this using a technique called a, a glucose clamp study. So this was a technique invented in the 70s in the States, actually by my uh, boss, um, Professor Stephanie Emile. And so what you know, insulin is a pretty strong drug. If you give enough of it, you can make anyone hyper. So, so the way we do it is we give a, a we give a high enough dose of insulin that we, we're confident the person will go low. We measure the glucose um, with a we put a line in. And so we can sample every five minutes. I'm sampling and not with a fingerprint machine, with a, a proper glucose analyzer that has an accuracy of 0.05. That's close. I'm, I'm measuring every five minutes and then I adjust how much glucose I put in. So if I put in a high amount of glucose, I can hold them steady at five. And then I drop the amount of glucose I put in and they come down. And then when they get to 2.5, I push it back up again and then we, we adjust it and manipulate it um, to hold the glucose exactly where we want it to. So for 2.5 for, for the next 40 minutes. So we're, we're in the MRI scan. I'm sampling every five minutes. Uh, we're getting MRI scans. We're, we're asking the patient symptom scores on a visual analog scale uh, where they click and say what symptoms they've got. We sometimes make them do um, some mental maths, some reaction time tests to see how the cognitive function is happening in those settings. So yeah, that's, that's, what, that's how we do the research in this field. That's really interesting because it's sort of like it's you're doing looping but for non-type ones in a way but like yeah and we can do this technique so i've done these studies in type ones type twos non-diabetics and you can hold the glucose exactly where you want to so in type two sometimes we've you know slightly side to the project but if we want to see how much what's the maximum insulin secretion that this type two can do we can push them up to 11 and hold them at 11 um just to see that so, so we do different things yeah, it does sound like most of your research is in hypoglycemia. So could you tell us, what, like, what is that? Well, you're trying to find the symptoms of feeling of hypoglycemia or not. What else have you looked at? And could you just tell us a little bit about your research in that particular area? Okay, so um, I guess research we've done. So I first started out about 20 years ago in this field. And actually, I did a project that was funded by the Department of Transport. And that project was to see, do people with type two diabetes, when they move from tablets to insulin, what happens to their hyper risk? Because at that time, as you might know, people, uh, if you're on insulin treated, you can't drive a, a lorry or a bus or, or you, know, you can't do that. Yeah. And actually we showed that their hyper risk was not different. And that was the first big study, 400 people followed up for a year using, using C-blinded CGM actually at the time. So that's what got me into CGM. And we were one of the first groups that said, well, how do you define hyperglycemia using CGM? And we, we came up with a definition that's been used ever since actually, which is 20 minutes below 3.9. So that, that's where I kind of started out. Then we've done a lot of stuff trying to find out what happens to the brain. What, why do people stop recognizing hyperglycemia? And so we've identified the parts of the brain that you know, we know in the brain, there's an area called the thalamus that's responsible for identifying symptoms that gets activated very strongly in people without diabetes and people with good awareness, but it's completely blank um, in people with impaired awareness. We've also uh, uh, found out that actually, you know, the question is, well, what stops working? It, there's an area of the brain in the front of the brain, the frontal lobe, kind of just behind here, that, um, that's involved with decision-making and that's involved with what we call executive function. And we've seen that in the hyper-unaware people, people who have lost their symptoms, that bit gets picked up quite early. So that's a bit of a strange thing. And so maybe it is that that frontal areas, our hypothesis of the way we interpret those results is that, well, maybe the frontal brain is saying, Do you know, what? I've seen these hypos a long time. There's something about in those individuals, it kind of says, 
you know, our, our, our thinking is that the thalamus picks up the hypo, there's parts of the brain that recognize hypoglycemia and um, a bit like the security system, right? They've screened it, they've looked at incoming uh, dangers and they've seen something that they think, is this a stress? And they send it to the frontal brain, the decision-making group and the frontal brain in non-diabetics and in people with normal awareness says, yeah, these guys are dangerous. This is dangerous. Mount the, mount the counterattack, mount the stress response because we want to attack that. But then in these people, the frontal lobe says, oh, I know these guys, hypoglycemia. This, these are, we don't need to worry about this one. I've had it many times before. It doesn't cause a problem. And it, it stops the stress response from happening. Okay. And so, uh, and interesting what we found linked to that. So we've also linked that in with, we, we asked questions of people with hypo awareness. And what we find is, so a very early study, we did a very simple one. People come to clinic and, you know, you'll have experienced this. You go to your doctor and, or your nurse, and they'll look at your numbers and your problem might be, I'm running a bit too high or I'm having too many hypos or in some cases both. And the team would make some recommendations to try and reduce those problems. And what we found was, you know, if you're coming with hypo unawareness and seeing me or Professor Emil, who specialize in problematic hypoglycemia, you'd assume our, our recommendations are geared towards reducing hypoglycemia. But we found that 50%, only 50% of the people even tried our recommendations. Okay. We're, so, so we're saying, I need you to drop your insulin or adjust your ratio. Well, let's try this. And, and what they do you might put be that nodding. down to? What, what did you put? So, the, if, if it's only 50%, that's, uh, I mean, that's not actually too bad, I guess, as, as a percentage. But what do you... It's 80%. You to... So people are running high 80% of the time. They said when they came back next time, they said, yeah, we tried it. And it either worked or they said we tried it and it didn't work. But the, So it's much less. So, so I think the reason is, is exactly this, that the patient come, and, and then, so we did some further research and we said, well, why aren't they, exactly, why aren't they listening to what we're saying? You know, we're, we're either we're rubbish or we're, we're not doing the right thing, right? And it, it turns out that then it mapped to some, what we call thinking traps. And it mapped to people with hypo unawareness. Um, they ended up with three or four types of mindsets. And broadly speaking, if I map it and connect the two with the imaging, the data we got from the imaging and the data we got from interviewing these people, it kind of came together. We could see the in the brain what was happening. So, so basically, if you take a non-diabetic person or people with good warning signs, maybe one of you, and make you hypo, the brain mounts a stress response, but more importantly, during recovery, there's a part of the brain that's responsible for what I call emotional salience. That is how important is an event to you? You know, you will experience lots of life events. Some of them have no emotional relevance to you as a person and others have a high emotional relevance to you. And that governs whether you do that thing again or not. Yeah. So my example is, yeah. And so these people, when you make people hyper, the part of the brain that has a negative emotional salience is activated for about 40, 50 minutes, even after the glucose is put back to normal. That's why you feel crap after a hyper. Okay. So... But in hyper-unawareness, kind of... that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So, so we're saying to people, I want you to avoid hyperglycemia. And they're saying, it isn't a problem. And then there's a group of those people who overestimate the risk of high glucose, right? So what we find is when, and the way I explain that is a bit like, imagine if you were to jump out of a plane with some nylon on your back, do your first skydive, right? You can imagine that most people say, oh, that was thrilling. That was exhilarating to have a standard response. But in that, if you do 100 people, 
there's if you take the two extremes, you've got a group of people who say that was so much fun. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to be a professional skydiver. Right. The emotional salience of that event was so much that they they like it. They and actually found in some of the imaging that there's a group of people who get a positive response from hyperglycemia. Uh-huh. They get a bit of a buzz, a bit of a, a pleasurable experience. Interesting. That is very interesting. But um, I've struggled with this myself in the past. And for me, it wasn't that I got a good response from hypoglycemia. It's that it was better than from hyperglycemia. So like I felt really, really bad, even like around sevens and eights, whereas at 3.5s, 3.8s, well, I could deal with it, you know. And so absolutely. So we hear people where the emotional salience of the high or low reading is different. So for that sort of person who's, and some of that is governed by where you land when you're diagnosed, right? And some of that is governed by your glucose readings over the last few weeks and months. So we know that if someone is running really low, then the threshold for where they feel their symptoms drops. So they say, well, I'm not getting any symptoms at 3.5. I'm not really having a hypo. I'm okay at this level. I know the machine's saying I'm low, but I don't feel low. So why should I change it? Particularly when what's been indoctrinated into my head since I started having diabetes was that you've got to get your glucose down. Yeah. And part of it is the messaging from the clinicians, which has always been, oh, your HPLC, your glucose needs to be down. We don't say it needs to be um, also not below a certain number. Right? Yeah. And so if the messaging or anything over 10 is harmful, and that's not combined with the message that anything under four can also have its own implications. And particularly when you're symptom, you know, and so the parallel is someone who runs high all the time. So we have people in clinic who, who always run in the 18s and 20s. And then when they get to nine or eight, they start feeling symptoms of hypoglycemia. So they say, my body is feels hyper eight, so I'm gonna stay at 15. Mm-hmm. So both of those are abnormal responses. The person who sits at three and says, Actually, I feel fine at three, but I feel abnormal at eight. That's also unhelpful, as is the person who's the other side and says, I feel fine at 16 or 18, but I, I, well, as soon as I get down below 10, I feel unpleasant. And all of that is related to, it's a combination of your current glucose levels and you know, bring readjusting your thermostat. Yeah. So to the off, right off, level. The back, off the back of that then, can you reverse your your um, hypo uh, awareness or unawareness, I guess would be a better way of saying it. And how long are you seeing for that, those kind of changes to take place? So the first, very good question. So the first, so interesting, the first report of hypo unawareness came from, so I used to work at King's, right? I've got the Leicester badge up, but I used to work at King's for 15 years. And the first report of hypo unawareness came from the, the person who set up Diabetes UK in England and the person who set up the Diabetes Clinic at King's, who was the second person to get insulin in the country in 1922, called Ardy Lawrence. So he was a doctor at King's and he wrote the books, The Diabetic Life. Um, and he came up with carb counting, rations of carb up mm-hmm. in the 30s. And he notes, I think there's a paper from 1927 where he notes that, you know what? I can now get down to really low glucose levels. And he was the junior boys Wimbledon champion actually. And he recorded that when he plays tennis, his sugar drops much faster. Lots of things that we, ah, we've just found out now with CGM, he'd worked out then with urine monitoring and mixing his insulin and doing all that sort of stuff. So um, 
But to your point, the first study that ever restored hyperawareness was in 1994, again at King's, where a guy called Ian Cranston, he's now a consultant in Portsmouth, he, he took 2015 or 16 people, I think, and he, he, he spoke to them every other day and readjusted their insulin, uh, and, 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 and they were doing regular monitoring. And as soon as they had four weeks without any reading below three, he restudied them again. And the way we defined awareness in the study was we would do one of those clamp studies mm-hmm. and we would, and, and you know, you take someone with glucose of five, you don't tell the person what sugar level they've got. And you then, and then you adjust the glucose to different levels without telling them what they are. And every few minutes they fill in a symptom form saying what my symptoms are, what my symptoms are. And we can measure their heart rate and their adrenaline response. Okay. Right? So it adrenaline is response. Possible. Correct. And Hisha found that we could restore symptoms much better than the adrenaline. So you can get a little bit of symptom response back. And so there were, uh, so he's the first person. And, and Daphne, actually, if you know the, the education program, Daphne in the UK. Absolutely. So 45% of people who enroll in Daphne have a report impaired awareness of hyperglycemia. Okay. And just the course a year later, 50% of those people say we've got our warning signs back. Okay. So that was my next question. If it was replicated in any way or not, because obviously when you do research, you need it to not be only one study, but several, but it sounds like it was. Yeah. So, so avoidance of hyperglycemia restores symptoms. Now it doesn't bring people in, not everybody, I think, you know, the Daphne study said about 50% of people restored symptoms in our studies. So the two studies I've just finished, we took people, we scanned them, and then we we tried to restore awareness and we re-scanned them. And I think our restoration rate is somewhere between 50 and 60%. Um, but you can avoid hypoglycemia successfully with modern technology, education, and input. You can very effectively avoid hypoglycemia. And I'd say you know, three quarters of people, two thirds to three quarters of people can restore a degree of awareness as well. And on your point about avoiding hypoglycemia then, are you specifically talking about the tech or are you talking about people's ability to avoid it naturally? And uh, just we, we, we interviewed Dr. Ponza, so sugar surfing, for instance. So, yeah, sugar surfing is fantastic. I've been really you know, amazed by the kind of work he's done. And I recommend it to a lot of people living with diabetes, you know, just showing how, what you can do. And I think my I've been extremely lucky that I, I've got a finger in a lot of different pies. And so I've got a finger in the Daphne pie. So there's a, you know, education as a way to restore awareness and making sure people understand the basic principles. And there's still people out there who, who don't really carb count, who don't really understand the impact of exercise and alcohol and fat and protein on, on their glucose readings. And, you know, if you don't know that, you're just shooting in the dark. And so obviously you're having more hypos and, and you adjust things out. Um, I've got a, a, a big finger or a few fingers in the technology park. So, you know, CGM and closed loops and all that sort of stuff uh, to restore awareness. Um, I've, been in, I've been involved in a couple of studies. So I was a, I played a big part in a recent, the biggest study to look at reducing hyperglycemia using tech, um, which, which I did, in, you know, I was involved in the design and implementation with Medtronic, uh, one of the top manufacturers with their systems. Um, and then also psychology, because actually with our imaging and with our work, we got interested in, so I wrote, so we reviewed um, kind of a, an evidence-based pathway to restore awareness. So I, was, I got involved with a, a whole group of people internationally 
Um, and we looked at all the evidence and it started off with, okay, education with like Daphne, carb counting, basic skills, insulin, there's less hypoglycemia with some of the more modern insulins. So, you know, if you move from ACTRAPID to NOVARAPID, NOVARAPID to FIAS, you get less hypos. There's some of the newer um, background insulins that reduce hypoglycemia. So you can you can get a marginal improvement with the change in the insulins. You then get a big 50, 60% reduction if you use an insulin pump. You get about a 60, 70% reduction if you use CGM. You get an 87% reduction if you combine them in a system that turns off when you're low. And then for, for people where even that doesn't work, of course, I when I was at King's for 15 years, I ran the islet transplant program. So in the UK, if you're still having hypos despite using the tech, we can do islet transplantation, which pretty much flatlines the, the glucose readings uh, and brings them almost back to normal. It's an amazing uh, treatment, of course, with its costs and challenges with the immunosuppression drugs you have to take with it. Yeah. Um, and then for and then there's a group of people that that don't sit in that pathway. And there's a group we you know we work that pathway. So this is straightforward. That's our protocol at Kings. We're the we, you know we look at people with hyperglycemia, and then we realize that actually there are some people that just don't progress down. They won't accept the education. They don't want the tech, and it's their psychology that's blocking them out. It's not a problem, uh, and that's why we then developed. Uh, and again, with my my boss did all the work here, Professor Emil, a pro a program called Harp Doc, which is hypoglycemia awareness restoration program, Harp Doc, despite optimized. Uh, control uh, or care and those results are going to be presented at the EASD conference um, in at the uh, next week at the end of September this year where we're showing that this psychological intervention six sessions uh, in people some of those people coming into that study reported 250 severe hypos a year they were having 250 glucagon injections a year because they were unconscious could you and define they go down to severe zero. hypo for me so in our world, a severe hypo or technically is any event where brain function is reduced to a level where you need third party support. Okay. Wow. Right. And, and you know, that could be the level where I'm like this and I need someone to get that glucose because I, I can't physically go. And it could be, of course, unconsciousness and uh, admissions and, and, and kind of seizures and that sort of stuff. Okay. So we're looking at those. So we took 100 people from around uh, four UK sites and one American site. and they were randomized to a, a program called blood glucose awareness training and another program called HARPDOC. Mm -hmm. And we found that both of those uh, pro programs reduced the severe hyper rates uh, significantly. The, 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 yeah. Well, I should begin with the results, but you'll see the results. <laughs> They'll be presented <laughs> so, so, the press release next week. Doc, are you, are you talking about changing people's sort of values and their beliefs rather than giving them the tools? Because the tools are quite a low level kind of um, adjustment in people's lives. You can do it for a certain period of time and then often it falls by the wayside. But if you can change people's mindset and their values and their beliefs and what's actually going to impact not only them, but potentially their, their family, their lives, their future, I think that's really important. Daria and I talk a lot about how mindset plays a massive part in our lives um, with diabetes. So uh, the tech and the data is one thing, and I'm all, all about the data, being an accountant, but how do you propose that we change people's mindset that are in that kind of, that, that ilk, the 250 um, uh, experiences a, a year? So the data say that it's about, two to five percent of people but five percent of people with type 1 diabetes account for 50 percent of all the ambulance call outs right and so and so you know when you study those there are 
so these are people who have a high risk of hypoglycemia, but a very low fear of hypoglycemia. Uh huh. Right. And their mindset blocks. And, and so how do you change your mindset? The first thing is you've got to understand what the mindset is. Right. And uh, a lot of times when they come to see people like myself who have a particular interest in that area, what their team has been doing is focusing on, oh, you're having lots of hypers. I'm going to cut your insulin. I need to run you high. Their fundamental problem is I don't want to run high. Okay. And if you're hey, not addressing that hey, mindset, that's me. <laughs> and, if, and if, if, if you go to a doctor and the, what, and basically it turns out they're two parallel conversations. Yeah. Right? The doctor is saying something. It has no relevance to what you're feeling, experiencing your real life. So actually it's just like in here, out the other side, you walk away. The doctor says, this person doesn't listen to anything I say. You are, you know, you might be, you know, non-compliant. You don't, you know, it doesn't work. And part of the problem is because the, the healthcare team haven't recognized your thought processes and they haven't been able to reflect them back to you in a way that is helpful, that realizes what, what you're doing is helpful or unhelpful. And actually, if you think about the kind of real core simple things are, are people seeing a glucose of four and a half and dropping and say, well, I'm not hyper now. I don't need to do anything about it. And then you get to a three and a half and dropping. And I'm not hyper, not feeling any symptoms. Why should I do something about it? And it's tied in with things about, you know, there's things about skill, there's things about equipment, there's things about knowledge, and there's things about beliefs. And so the process that we go through in HeartDoc addresses all of those things. It, it kind of reflects back the problems that are there. It uses peer support to identify, well, actually, is it right that I'm three and I'm having 200 hypos? And it's reflected back well. Because one of the things is that when you're low, the memory of that event is often absent from your memory. You don't experience it, particularly for those people having repeated hypos. They, someone brings them around, they wake up, everyone else has been running around frantically trying to pick them up. And you know, we'd look a bit more into this, about a third of people. So there's some people who, there's, there's, there's a differentiate into those people as well. There's some people who have the lows, have the impacts and just carry on. And, you know, and there's mm -hmm. other people and what a lot of people then end up doing is they end up surrounding themselves with people who pick up the pieces. So if you're, so I've come across people like, you know, they're never alone because they can hyper at any time. So they're safe in it. I don't need to do anything about it. Whenever I hyper, my brother, my partner, my father, pick me up, give me some glucose and bail me out. My work colleagues notice that I'm just a little bit vague today and they, they nudge some glucose towards me and I have it and that's my coping mechanism. Other people restrict their activities. So I'm talking about the severe end of things here when people are having, you know, and they say, well, I don't go out. I don't do exercise. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do any of these things because when I do them, I have a hyper. It's very upsetting, to be honest. That is very upsetting because there is so much in there that is tied in with the mindset that you, you're talking about. Absolutely. And I guess it's really difficult, like, especially if you wouldn't have like support systems and you yeah. couldn't have access to the program that you're talking about um yeah. what's it called again heart heart doc heart doc um heart if doc. you don't have access to programs like that it's really difficult for the patient because they just end up in this loop of just like fear of yeah. a high and yeah. then they're just yeah. low all the time and they end up losing half their life basically and when i'm talking about restrictive activities maybe some of the people we see end up because they haven't had the skill, the knowledge, the support to work at how to have a normal diet and a normal life. 
they end up saying, right, my way of managing this, I'm not going to have any carbs. Because mm-hmm. my experience is when I take insulin for carbs, I have a hypo. So a lot of times my, my bias and my prejudice is that people who end up on a very low carb diet or a diet in either way have been because they haven't had the support when they've tried something that's normal. So it's, it's, a, it's a restrictive behavior. In, you know, and my fundamental philosophy is that my job as a healthcare professional is to, is to adjust the insulin therapy around what you want to do. And my last resort is to say, right, I'm going to have to ask you to manage this or that or that or that. And, and I know we were talking just before we started, you know, people talked about the fact that, well, does carb intake affect your glucose control? And so in 148 people, my student, I had a young medical student do a BSc project on this. And she looked at a month worth of data from pump downloads. Yeah. And she analyzed 3,495 meals. A lot of meals. And looked at what was the pre-meal glucose and what was the post-meal glucose and did the size of the meal, the carb content entered, have any impact? Okay. And the answer was no. We plotted HbA1c across carb intake. And actually, whether your carb intake was 60 grams a day or 260 grams a day, your probability of having good control was the same. And was that done in a like specific segment of the population? Because obviously those people should have had some kind of education in how to control their blood glucose. Yeah, they're people manage at the, managed by me and my team. So they have the best care in type 1 diabetes in the country. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I wanted to ask you kind of an opposite question towards the psychology side. So... Mm-hmm. We know that the blood glucose levels do affect symptoms and how we feel and how we feel on a mental level, Mm -hmm. but also seeing a blood glucose level can affect you on a mental level. What do you do with patients who come with that issue? Yeah, I think the, so blood glucose reading is a very emotive number. Unfortunately. Right. Um, Yeah. And we are responsible for that. And I think, so there's a couple of things, isn't it? I hope you've experienced and your listeners will have experienced a shift in mindset from a target glucose reading to the concept of time and range, yeah, which is a bit more permissive. My take on time and range is what I don't like is people saying your target glucose is five and just change it to, you must have 70% time in range, which or your HPNC is to be 7%. You're at nine percent. Work harder, yeah. and just shift that to your time and That's not what it's about. What time and range is about actually to me is permissiveness. What time and range to me is actually about is saying that you know the guys who've had fifty years of type one diabetes without complications, they manage about seventy percent time between four and ten. That's yeah. enough. Which means that your allowance to be over ten through the day, without having a excessive negative impact on your life is 30% of the day. Yeah. And so a day, if a day has 24 hours, 30% of the day is about eight hours. So your allowance to be over 10 is eight hours a day. Wow, that's quite a bit to be quite honest. Yeah. And I'm assuming and that, that, that doesn't when... mean it can like skyrocket too high. Um, but yeah, that, that is actually quite refreshing and 
good to know. So I, I, when I've said that to people, I've found that the, the impact of that has been, you know, because particularly in today's world now, we've got Libre and CGM, which is fantastic. Yeah. But actually, it means that people are, are feeling more judged by the numbers. Yeah. And, and, and so I think it's really important to say, you know, a, a single reading of 20 is not going to, your eyes aren't going to fall out of your face and your legs aren't going to get left behind it's at the, the desk. consistency over the, the one single. It's over the last 60 years. And if you've had a day that is absolutely rubbish, <laughs> as long as you've got, you know, I was going to say that, as long as you've yeah, got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some, but you've, you've got some days in the bank when it was fine, right? If yesterday I only clocked four hours of time out of range and today it's 12 hours, it's fine. So if you have a bad day, what I tell people is go to your device, click on the longest data range it will allow you to look at and have a look at what you're doing over the last 90 days. Yeah. And say, do you know what? Today was okay. I'm just going to write it off because tomorrow will be better. The other thing that we talk about is that in my clinics, the word, what word do you use to describe when you do a finger prick and see a reading? What word do you use a test. to describe that? A test. So it that has word a is banned. doesn't it? That word is absolutely banned in my clinic. And we, I make, we make a big play of it saying, um, I, I say that exact word that, okay, from now on, depending on the relationship, I'll say, I want you to put your right hand up and I want you to swear on your insulin pump or whatever it is, that you will never, ever, ever use the word test again. And if anyone uses it to, about a glucose measurement in your, in your presence, you will stop the mid-sentence and make them repeat that pledge. It's a bit of a funny thing. People think he's nuts. It's but, funny, but, but when you do something important. that's nuts, I think it's, it's, it's memorable. <laughs> I think it's the small things that are really, really important. Um, on the back of that, I wanted to ask you, like, you have studied obviously a lot in hypoglycemia, but have you looked at the chemical responses that alter our mood because of hypoglycemia? Um, I did so catch that, you on the spot with that one. No, 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 I'm just trying to think. So, so we haven't. So what we can, what we we can't actually is is, is a is a better response to that. Okay. So what we can do is we can look at parts of the brain. So the way the technique you look at you what you, you what you see is is actually what you're looking at is blood flow to different parts of the brain. So when you make someone hypo or when you ask someone to do a task, actually what happens is that part of the brain that's doing the work burns more energy. And mm -hmm. so actually there's a localized response and it gets more blood flow. Okay. So for example, if you're, if you make someone do finger tapping, the little bit of the brain that controls the finger lights up because that part of the brain is sending impulses to the finger. And because it's sending impulses, it's, it's burning energy more than the part of the brain that's feeding the foot that's doing nothing. And you can actually pick up the increased blood flow in that area. So that's so, and if, if the part of your brain that's, feeling an emotion and that part of the brain works more and mm -hmm. you see an increased blood flow in that area so you don't know what's driving it and actually you don't so that part of which chemical is done there's some colleagues of mine who i know very well there's uh, there's some fantastic groups in dundee and in cambridge mark evans in cambridge and um, and uh, rory mccrimmon in dundee amongst others who look at this and they do that in animal models okay where they give animals sugar, and then you can actually there you can 
because actually cutting open people's brains and measuring chemicals in the brain is kind of frowned upon. Yeah, kind of just not <laughs> not possible. Is so it? you've obviously you've moved from um, Kings to Leicester, and you've been there for about a year now. How's how's your first That's year right. been? It's been fantastic. It, it, it's been a different, very different kind of that, that kind of chapter of looking at brains is, is kind of gone and I'm, I'm getting into other things and uh, there's a slightly different angle of research that we're picking up here in Leicester. Um, in fact, um, in the clinical service, again, very different at King's. Our service was very much focused on King's has a reputation internationally in type 1 diabetes. We had the islet transplant lab. So it was very much focused on being a national referral center for people with problematic hypase. And so 70% of people I saw came from all over the country, from as far away as Truro and Glasgow, Nottingham, 70%. I think about 40% were outside of the M25, referred in to see us because people didn't know what, what to do. Um, my practice at Leicester is very different. Um, it's very much focused on our local population. Um, yeah, so it's a, uh, but it's, you know, I've still actually got a day a week at King's and we're doing a project that I think is really interesting. It might be interesting to your listeners because, you know, many of the people with type 1 diabetes now are using CGM. Yeah. And many people will have noticed glucose dips under what we define as hypoglycemia, 3.9 or even 3.0, which you didn't feel. Mm. Right. Uh, uh, and interestingly, and, there's a lot, and the, particularly overnight, you might wake up and find out that you've been low for a large part of the night. Um, and actually no one really knows what those numbers mean, right? Um, and what their impact is on mood, on functioning, on, on other things. So we've got a study, we're recruiting 600 people, um, type one and type two across uh, eight sites, nine sites now, a few European sites. Um, it's a project called Hypometrics and they're recording over 10 weeks, every single hypo they feel and also the CGM hypos and what we and we've got about a, you know, what the data said, there was a small study done in, in, in Denmark that found that about even people who we thought had, you know, but all of the measures had really good awareness of hypoglycemia, only pick up 50% of those uh, CGM hypos. Do you see that research um, helping people actually get pumps and get the technology later on? I don't know how it gets used will be different. I think from my perspective, the main thing is, I think one of the main things I want to look at actually is, is the, this impact of overnight hypoglycemia. It's such a big emotive topic, right? You know, I've, I've had, I've almost been assaulted by a patient who, who her, her son, so this patient, you know, People get so scared about nighttime hypos and doctor, don't haven't you heard of dead in bed? And you know, I, I measure my glucose over and I wake up, I've not slept my entire life because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and check my glucose, right? And then I've worn a sensor, and I've I've got a dummy sensor on at the moment for a research study I'm doing at the moment, actually. Um, uh, which is a blinded sensor. And actually, I've, I've I've worn blinded sensors before for various research studies in the past, and I spend the whole night at 2.8, 2.7 and wake up. Right. So A, it happens in non-diabetic people. Yeah. So it can't be that bad. B, if I were to put a blinded sensor on 100 people with type 1 diabetes, at least 20 would have had, would have at least an hour under three last night. And 
if they didn't were told about it, they wouldn't know about it and they'd carry on. And the studies say that actually people don't report any change in mood or sleep, sleep quality or anything if they don't know about it. So there's an inter interesting question there, which I might put to you. Uh, I put this to a number of different people and I'm really interested in the response. I say, if I give you three options, option one is you wake up with a glucose of 4.8 tomorrow morning and you think, ah, good, I'm on target. And you carry on with your day. The blinded CGM says that you had an hour low last night, below three, right? Between two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning, your glucose dipped down to 2.5 to the night, and then it kind of rose back up again as it often does in the morning, right? But you didn't know about it, you carry on. Option two is you now got a Libre. So you wake up with a four pointer, you scan it and you say, shit, I was low overnight, mm -hmm. right? So now when you, now when you get a, a headache, when you've been staring at a screen all day, it's because of the hyper, right? So patient one who didn't know they were hypo gets a hypo, gets a headache. They think I've got a migraine today. Uh, my glucose is fine. I've still got a headache. You know, I've been staring at a screen all day. I've, my boss is on my back. I've got a headache. Patient number two who scans their Libre, sees they were low overnight, um, uh, gets a headache. It was because of the hypo. Patient number three, the thing beeps at two o'clock in the morning, breaks there and their partner sleep. They wake up, they have to have some glucose. Then they can't get back to bed. And they get to bed at four o'clock in the morning, then the alarm goes at six and, and they wake up with a glucose of 12 because they overcooked the hypo and they have a headache as well. What would you prefer to do? What's the best option? What's the right thing to do? Go, Andrew. For, for, The, the broken sleep is a big problem for people with diabetes. And I, I, I think out of all of those choices, I actually would like the last one the least. Um, I, I don't like the idea of the broken sleep, but equally as a type one, I do want to know what's happened and I do want to know the data. And therefore I'm at, I'm at complete cross mode here where I'm struggling with the answer. Um, for my mindset, the first, for the data probably and the mindset, is probably the second but but the, the the worst but the best in many ways is the last is i i think it comes down to the individual which is uh, everything yeah. about diabetes i'm kind of the same i agree with you that the last one i would definitely not choose um i wouldn't want to ha spend half the night awake um luckily we i do choose it we, we do, do but i don't have the problem have the of falling asleep I just, you I am like, you just give me the pillow. I'm done. Like I turn off in one second. So I never have that issue, but I agree that I would choose the second option out of the three. So we all have, you know, and then, you know, clinician would say, well, if you've got a sensor and then you've got, you'll have people listening to this podcast shouting at it saying, hang on, but haven't you heard of dead in bed? That's what someone shouted at me and said, have you heard of dead in bed? My kid could die while they're asleep. Now, thankfully that is so rare. Thankfully it's so rare. Mm -hmm. And, and you've got to work out what's that caveat. There are people out there say, you know, I just don't want to have a low because I feel so crap after if I've had a low. The reality of the matter is that actually, well, energy equal to one story is apart. The data says that if you didn't get wake up by it, you don't, it doesn't affect your mindset. We, we, but that, those are small studies. So we're doing this in this kind of pretty large cohort. And each people will have, you know, it might be that if you're low for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 60 minutes, it doesn't affect you. But if you're low for three hours, it does affect you. 
you know, uh, half of those lows aren't the... really lows because the CGMs um, false read. So, so that, that's kind of if you're saying that that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment, and, and our study should report uh, end of next year. Sorry, in the middle of 2022, and you know, we, we we will have actually data to say, well, yeah, this is what 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 the range of responses are, but this is what the on the whole responses are. On, it's, it's really interesting that you're looking at people that are not diabetic as well, because I don't think we spend enough time talking about people that are not diabetic. What happens for someone that doesn't have to go through what we have to go through? And what happens to their bloods? Because obviously ketogenic for six years, as I was looking for that perfect horizontal line, when you, when you actually educate yourself a bit, people shouldn't have a perfectly horizontal line. That isn't a normal lifestyle. And so, I, th I think we need to hear more about people going low that are not diabetic. I think we need to hear more about people going high that are not diabetic to make us feel a little bit more normal. And then the comment I make, so you made a point there about getting that perfect flat line. And, and, you know, we come across a lot of, you come across people who struggle with the diabetes because they didn't just run high. And you come across people who are, you know, and a lot of it's driven by the personality you're born with. And a lot of people will come to me and the people actually in my clinic will come to me and say, my sugar is so variable, doctor. It's up and it's down all the time and it's, it's horrible and I can't bear it. They're the people of the lowest variability. Right? Yeah. And the reason they're so bothered by it is because they're working so damn hard to reduce the variability. And, <clears throat> and it's about reflecting back. And of course, you've got your energy equal to one, right? You're just seeing it going up and down in the moment when it's this close and you really don't have that luxury of sitting back and saying where things are and where do I sit in the context of people of the other 300,000 people in, in the UK with, with type one diabetes and to say, well, actually, okay, you've got, you know, people say I've got a time and range. I've got, it's got to be hundred percent time and range. That's obviously got to the A if that's the target. And you say, well, actually, you know what? I, I've been looking at CGM traces for 15, 20 years now. Um, and I've looked at lots of different people with type 1 diabetes. And without kind of really, really involved management with closed loops, I can really, I think there's a handful of people I've seen who can crack 80% time and range consistently. Right? Yeah. When I wear a CGM and I don't have diabetes, I'm at about 85% time and range and about 10% time below range, right? With maybe a few percent time above range. I'm an Indian guy, slightly overweight. So, um, you know, you get the post meal peaks that occasionally dip over depending on how much Indian sweets I've had. But um, <laughs> so, so you see, so you know, and, and the, the, my analogy, I, I, I do a lot with little kind of similes and analogies. I think there are interesting ways to convey information. And I would say to someone, often those sort of people, are, you know, in, when you get to London and you see people and they're, they're working in high profile jobs and, you know, they're, they're they, the reason they're working those jobs is because they're perfectionists, they're hardworking, they're high achievers. And um, you can go and ask them, okay, so you've got an HBA1C of 6%, your time and range is 78%, which you're doing all by yourself and you're unhappy with that. Did you go to Oxford or Cambridge? Are you working Deloitte or, or, or KFA, KFMG? Yeah, and they say, how do you know? Well, your, your CDM trace tells me who you are. Yeah. And you kind of say, you know, let's say to get into your perfect course, in university, you need 70% marks, right? And then there's another guy in your class who's got 90% marks and he gets into the same course as you do. But to get that 90%, the guy never played any sports, he's never kissed a girl yet, he's never been out party, he's never 
had any out, you know, drinks. And he's got 90%. And then 70%, but you've been out, you've, you've had a few laps, you've got a good friend circle, you play some sports, you enjoy yourself, you've got a girlfriend or more. And, um, you know, you're all in the same class. And at the moment, if you crack 70%, your risk of, of having something awful happen to you is really, really low. Yeah. And it's so, a great analogy, I think, because it's very relatable to a lot of people. Um, we don't really need to be as high achievers as we think we need to be. Yeah. So, Dr. Chattery, you have loads of incredible research as well in eyelid transplantation. And in um, I know you did a study recently in Time and Rage in, during COVID. Um, could we briefly touch on that study? Because I just found it really interesting. And then we're going to let you go. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we managed to contact um, me and a couple of friends, uh, Dr. Emma Wilmot from Derby and Dr. Jerry Raymond from Ipswich. We, we connected with the Abbott leadership within UK and we said, you know, what, we're really interested in what happened during COVID. Um, and we've got loads of people using Libra. And of course, when you sign up to your Libra account, you... You, you can tick a box that says, can they use your anonymized data? So we were able to pull the data from the back end. Um, we don't know who these people are, but we know there are 10,000-ish people with type one using Libre. We don't, that's all we know about them, right? And they, they self-report their age groups. And they, you know, there's some minimal data that, yeah. that, that we can look at. So we know the categories, I think under 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 70, some of that. And, and what we found was that during lockdown, everyone's time and energy on average improved by about so we found that the older people had the best time and range, firstly, and the youngest people had the lowest time and range at baseline. So we looked at data from January, February, pre-lockdown, and then we looked at data from April to June, which is post-lockdown, and everyone improved. The people, and obviously the people who are the lowest, the youngest people improved the most, right? But they still stayed under where the, the, the older people were. So the age, people who, who said they were over 65 had the highest time and range, and they, uh, they improved a little bit. Now, all the data till now shows that your time and range is linked to how many scans you do, right? Yeah. And the UK average scans is about 11 per day. And, uh, and basically, it's, a, it's kind of a, a line. So if you're scanning less than five times a day, your average A1C is above 8%, right? If you're scanning around about 10 times a day, your average A1C is about 7.5%. And those people who crack 7% usually are doing 15 to 18 scans a day. Yeah. Okay. Beyond 18 scans a day, you know, it's, it's diminishing returns, right? There's, there are some people out there scanning 50 times a day, but they're, they're not really getting much more benefit over above 20. And so we thought maybe people are now at home, so they're just scanning more frequently, and that's they're picking up the highs and they're improving, but they're not. The scanning frequency didn't change at all. It's sat at about 10 to 11 across all patch. And so we think it's probably because people are having much more stable lifestyles and know what they're eating because eat, I think it's eating out particularly in the younger people, people not eating out so much. Yes. People have got much more regular lifestyles. Maybe people are doing a bit more exercise. Um, we also know that diabetes loves routine. And when you're doing the same thing every day all over again, you can see the patterns and you can adjust to the patterns. So you can see, see that's a pattern. Yeah. Although I, I do have a pet peeve. I'm going to make a comment about routines and a lot of people um, have been told, or their belief, I see a lot of people whose who's main, you know, yeah, I know my sugar's quite high, or whatever, you know, those sort of people we see. And the, my, my problem is I don't have a routine. And so if I don't have a routine, I can't get diabetes control. And I have a problem with that statement and that myth 
I think. I don't think you need a routine to manage diabetes. I don't think if that was the case, then no one would have control that was in target, right? I think what you, and that routine story comes from 1960s. In 1960, you took one shot of ultralente or monotide that lasted the whole day and you had to eat at fixed times, otherwise you'd go low, right? In today's world with pumps and sensors and multiple daily injections and carb counting, what you actually need is a micro routine. So there is a routine in place, but the routine is scan, inject, wait 15 minutes and eat, forget about it for two hours and then repeat. Yeah. Scan, inject, eat, forget, repeat. And I then also, it doesn't matter. And then I wasn't implying that we have to have a routine to manage diabetes. Well, I was saying it is probably easier for people to manage their diabetes yeah. if they do have some sort of routine going. Okay. I know, I know, I know what you meant, but uh, but when you say those words, it's it's it can be interpreted as well. If I want to have diabetes control, I've got to eat three fixed meals a day. Actually, that's the wrong way to do diabetes. Three fixed meals. You, those three meals are bigger. The carb counting error is higher. Um, what actually works? If I if I see what have I learned from people who who succeed, and what can I sh you know how you share information from learn from the people who are doing fantastically well, they eat small frequent meals. I guess it works differently for everyone, doesn't it, as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, which, which is one of my pet peeves about diabetes. I hate hearing that line. It works differently for one? every single person. Uh, it works differently for every single person because I'm like, that's just a caveat for we don't have an answer or we can't help. And I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay. anyway, Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for your time. Um, and thank you for telling us about your absolutely incredible research. Um, I am very fascinated. I'm looking forward to looking at some of your work and reading some of it. Um, so just thank, thank you. you. It's a real pleasure talking to you, Adman. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. We can say that this is one of our favorite episodes yet. And if you have enjoyed Dr. Chowdhury talking about his work just as much as we have, you can check him out and give him a follow on Twitter. He is at Dr. Pratik C. Uh, and we will link him in the show notes below as well. And if you would like to find us, you can find Andrew at T1D underscore one life and Daria at Nutritiously Daria and also at www.t1leveldaria.com if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe in your podcast app and leave us a review it really helps with the podcast getting out there and reaching more people we hope you join us next week for the next episode